you are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are not in Rome. One of his old teammates, good friend, Thomas. Ecco l'abbraccio anche con Alberto Dainese, di grande vittoria di Cavendici, l'abbraccio di Michele Pallini, una straordinaria vittoria, un sprinti a casa, un reato acceso, apri mogliere mia, fammi un caso, forse ci tenere forse. O'Brien, il barone, what we heard there was a familiar voice. Ciro, Ciro d'Italia, Ciro Scogna Emilio, speaking in uh, not an unfamiliar language, but not the language he's usually speaking on the cycling podcast. Ciro was in amongst it. He was right in the scrum. He was there to witness history being made. We were not. We were not, for reasons we'll explain later in the podcast. We weren't in Rome, but Ciro was um, returning to the scene of one of his... Mo- favorite moments in professional cycling you remember when Pippo Pozzato won what was that race called um, Roma Maxima yeah or, th- he, did, he didn't win Roma exactly. Maxima he thought he'd won Roma well, Maxima the, and it was the old um, Giro Lazio yeah, yeah. Exactly. and he posed magnificently for the winner's photograph as he came over the line um, arms spread wide above his head with the Colosseum in the background. <laughs> Little did he know that there was an AG2R rider, I think it was Blel Cadri, who was down there about two minutes but down isn't the it, road. Uh, isn't but isn't it great also that you remember that more than you remember who won? So in a way he actually won, didn't he, at least in terms of getting the right photo? He, he, it, was, it was very fitting. But history really was made in, a, in the most sensational fashion this afternoon this Giro d'Italia over the last few days it's had more redemption stories than a first print run of the Count of Monte Cristo um <laughs> quite extraordinary Qu- quite extraordinary I don't think any of us necessarily saw that coming many people hoped that they might see a Mark Cavendish victory in Rome I don't think anyone thought they would see such an emphatic victory no. for Mark Cavendish no 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 not at all I mean it was it was a lot more than you could hope for uh, but yeah, he stayed in the he stayed in the race and he f- fought his way across the the mountains for for that exact moment. Well, Brian, as I said, we're not in Rome, unfortunately, because I, I'm I, I wouldn't say I'm regretting our choice now not to go to Rome because, as I said, the reasons why we're not there will be outlined in part two. However. Um, it feels slightly remiss of us to not be there to see this extraordinary moment in a in a career of extraordinary moments, and it, it's probably not the last incredible moment in the career of Mark Cavendish. It is in the Giro d'Italia today. It was his last stage ever, his last sprint in the Giro d'Italia. 
Um, uh, the, the most spectacular bookend imaginable to a Giro d'Italia career which started, well, as far as victories are concerned, started with that win in Catanzaro Lido way back in 2008. That was his first Grand Tour victory. But, Brian, before I give away too much of the detail, um, for one final time on this Giro d'Italia, let's have the tale of the tapa, shall we? It's time for the tale of the tapa. With absolute pleasure, Daniel. So, I don't know if you can probably hear the church bells here, but it's not because... I, I wonder what that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I live close Putting to the... a nice timestamp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. live close to the piazza. That's, uh, that's my homecoming, I suppose. Also, it's, it's seven o'clock, so that's the main reason. Anyways, back to the tale of the Tapa, Daniel. So, the 22nd... Sorry, the 21st stage of the 2023 Giritalia, Roma to Roma... Uh, it was, um, I think, I guess, in a, it resembles a little bit what the Grand Tours are doing these days. Instead of just doing a circuit race, they start a little bit outside of town. And in this case, it wasn't that far outside because it was in the Lido di Ostia, which is the, the beachside uh, just outside of Rome. And they, they went from there and then into the, the circuits. And the circuits were in the most stunning setting in in the middle of Rome, six Giri, six laps of 13.6 kilometers. Uh, even with a with a stretch of Pave on the on a couple of places, uh, not, not at least on the on the finish line. Um, the circuit in itself was, uh, I mean, especially seen from above and in, in the in the beautiful evening light. It was basically the the most picturesque parts of Rome you can imagine. With the you know, we talked about that yesterday as well. With the Circo Massimo, the Colosseo, the the Piazza Navona, Piazza del Popolo, and um, and just the Villa Borghese in the background, and the St. Peter's Church uh, to the left side of the Tevere. But uh, should we discuss, Brian? We, I think you don't want us to pause right now to discuss the the whether this vindicated the choice to have the final stage in Rome. Should we save that till after Taylor Tapper? I think so. So, as per usual, and as you'd think, there there were a lot of riders who wanted to go and and try and. And hit the right breakaway, and it's very it's very rare that it happens, and uh, that didn't keep a damper on things. Uh, especially, Trek Sigafredo's Tom Schoens was very active, and he actually got a lot out of it because he won both of the intermediate sprints. The, the first one was with 71.6 to go, and the last, so after 71, and the last one on the fourth lap with um, after 98.6 kilometers. Uh, he didn't win any jersey or anything for that, but he did actually win the... Uh, it, it, Daniel, you help me here. Is it still called the Inter-Giro competition? I don't believe it's called... Uh, sprint Intermedio, right. I believe it's called, because the Inter-Giro was a general ah, classification right. Right. competition. Wasn't that was done on time. Yeah, yeah. yeah so this is... Uh, I mean, he's, he's the one who's, who's gathered most points of, uh, of those. Uh, so at least he got that out of it. With 14 kilometers, well, there was a short attack also at the end uh, from uh, Magnus Court. Derek G was uh, out there as well early on. But at, with 14 to go, it was all together and all the sprint teams, well, the ones who are left anyway. So in this case, it was mainly uh, Astana and Movistar, uh, respectively for uh, McCavendish and, and Gaviria. So it was mainly just for uh, those two guys, Gaviria and McCavendish. However... Um, Jonathan Milan was definitely up there as well, wanting to have his say. An absolutely incredible moment happened. A few uh, less than two kilometers from the finish, uh, you saw 
Tim Minius move up, and I was thinking, what are they? Is, is Garen Thomas starting to ponder a last-minute attack? No, he wasn't. He was actually just placing Mark Cavendish in the most perfect. His old mate. His old mate, his old teammate, his friends. I mean, they they actually have a common connection with Italy because they lived in Quarata, uh, 40 minutes drive from where I'm recording. This was, was where the British Academy um, on the the stern leadership of Maximilian Strandry uh, made bike riders out of these English track riders. Uh, so they, they go back a long time and we should we saw English and Welsh Brian English Manx and be very careful with this Brian please Manx and Welsh Manx corrections corner live corrections corner I uh, I, I stand corrected and I'm happy to I'm happy to take a bow on on such a serious mistake apologies for that to all English speaking listeners uh, yeah so they go a long way back and what he did today was just an incredible act of unselfishness and it's going to be one of those very very memorable moments of that last stage but also of the possibility to mark for mark cavendish to have this fairy tale ending to his his story with the geo uh, i i didn't actually believe it when he first moved up and then i realized jesus he's actually here for for cavendish so what a gesture and what a sprint uh, unfortunately it was uh, uh, marred a little bit the finish itself by a crash uh still waiting to see confirmation that everyone's okay it looked like everyone was back on their feet again uh, but Mark Cavendish won with two bike lengths. And I'm actually quite certain he would have won anyways because he was... Two bike lengths? How long are your... Two bike lengths? How long are the bikes that you've seen? But two tri- tandems. Tricycles. Three tandems. <laughs> it was about seven bike lengths. Okay. Well, probably... Well, I have a massive cargo bike next to me here when I'm recording. So maybe that's what I think. Either way, he was perfectly placed behind Jonathan Milan. And if there's anywhere where you're not catching any wind in any bike race, it's by uh, sitting on his wheel because he's a, he's a tall fella, isn't he? Uh, the stage win obviously took Cavendish, Alex Kirsch, uh, second for Tex Sigafredo and Filippo Fiorelli with a with a good result for them to finish off at on third. Alberto Danese was fourth. No changes in the GC, obviously. Um, no changes in the general classification, and there will be no changes now. We can finally say that Primoz Roglic has won the. Giro d'Italia 2023 no caveats no disclaimers no asterisks um, apply at this point he wins the general classification by 14 seconds from Garant Thomas so no change there Brian in fact you have to go a long way down the general classification to see any changes today there were a couple of riders who just sort of melted off the the main bunch as they came into Rome probably soaking up some of that extraordinary atmosphere and who knows maybe some of the sights uh, Rowan Dennis was one who lost a few positions on general classification but not relevant to the the headlines and the bottom line of well the overall winner of this Giro d'Italia and that extraordinary extraordinary finale Brian we should also just remind people that Thibaut Pino is the winner of the the mountains competition his final margin of victory was 37 points over Derek G who was the star the king of hearts really never mind king of the mountains he was the king of hearts this Giro d'Italia certainly was Joao Almeida won the white jersey best young rider by 4 minutes and 50 seconds from Timon Aronsman and in the points competition well Jonathan Milan he vanished somehow in the last 500 metres of the sprint um, having been in a very good position you mentioned the, the key role he played in Mark Cavendish winning we'll <laughs> yeah. talk about that in a minute but he sort of he kind of vaporised I don't know where he got to because he finished a long way down one, but, one thing that actually uh, um, just comes to mind before we did go into the details 
I'm not sure with his sprinting style and those cobblestones put together, I'm not sure that that actually produces a lot of forward momentum. No, that is a possibility. Um, but he does go home with the Chiclamino jersey and a convincing victory in the end, an emphatic margin of victory. He finishes with 217 points to Derek G. Another second place for Derek G. Here's 164 points. Brian, I think, as far as the sort of housekeeping is concerned on the overall Giro d'Italia, I think that's about it. Um, 44.88 kilometres an hour today. That was faster than the organisers predicted on uh, on this final stage of Rome. So let's now, Brian, just talk a little bit about the sprint. Um, it, it did defy expectation, the odds. So a lot of people have written Mark Cavendish off this year a lot of people have written him off throughout his career and well this was a warning shot for anyone who is inclined or was inclined to continue to write him off particularly looking ahead to the Tour de France and the key thing we can't ignore we can't can't overlook the fact that there have been several occasions in this Giro d'Italia when his team has not quite been up to the task which is understandable it's a team without too much sprinting pedigree and particularly in that sort of five kilometer to two kilometer to go twilight zone that is where he's often got lost and started just slowly but inexorably losing positions and if you you know if you start a sprint particularly nowadays from 30th position 20th position where you might as well not bother i was a little Um, bit but he was i was sorry i was just a little bit worried that that would be the case today because what we didn't see yesterday, they definitely made up in following the race very minutely uh, on the last uh, finishing kilometers of the stage and, and in that sense also the Giro because he was actually moving a little bit backwards and I was like, ah, oh, he had a rider actually f- further up front. It was probably Luis Leon Sanchez and then Cavendish was it sort was, of yeah. drifting a little bit back, losing one place, two place and then, yeah, he, he, he did then in the end actually do what he's done when he was at the height of his career. He just moved up and found the perfect trajectory towards the finish line. And yeah, timing is sometimes everything in the sprint and not just uh, acceleration and top speed. He, he timed it brilliantly today and it looked like the Mark Cavendish of 2008 even. You know, it's just like there's a certain way yeah. that he can. There's a reason why he's called Cannibal. One of his nicknames is Cannibal Cavendish. He just shot himself directly uh, out of the Coliseum and then onto the finish line. Well, he arrived uh, as though in a, a horse-drawn chariot a la Mario Cipollini in the 1999 Tour de France. Although Cipollini was actually in a chariot on that occasion, but that was <laughs> on the way to the start, if you remember. That was part of a publicity stunt. Yeah. Um, clad in a toga and a gold laurel wreath. Um, Cavendish didn't have the toga or the laurel wreath, but he did, ha- did have a chariot of, short, of sorts um, made up of various different component parts. And you... You know, you mentioned Geraint Thomas, incredible gesture, but also an incredible job. And to me, that underlined the position that needs to be addressed by Astana, by Cavendish for the Tour de France, if if he is to get that 35th stage win. Because as I say, it's that, it's that sort of area or or that phase of the sprint where I think he's struggled. They're missing uh, Italia, and they're missing some links in the chain, aren't they? To put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the final part, the the 500 metres to go to 
to the line I think he's got enough now and enough experience and there are enough there'll be enough trains and enough lead out men strewn across the road for him to probably find his way but I think that he needs to be higher up than 15 back or 20 back uh, at times during this Giro d'Italia coming into the last two kilometers that's going to be really key I mean I've been speaking over the course of the last few weeks to people at Astana about who might play that kind of role I mean Luis Leon Sanchez is someone with the horsepower but he's a rider who has not generally liked sort of getting his elbows out in sprint finishes not something he's generally done in his career a whole lot I and mean, he did it today the other thing, Brian, uh, that struck me about today's finish that I think really played in Cavendish's favour was the width of the road. Yeah. Um, I think that it was, well, it was very wide and that redu- that that took the emphasis away from the lead-out train a little bit. It was easier to move around, easier to find one's way. Another thing, we mentioned it earlier in the Giro d'Italia, Fernando Gaviria has this habit of going very, very long. Yep. Um, 350, 400 metres to go. It looks incredible when he succeeds. When he doesn't, he becomes the best lead-out man in the peloton. <laughs> this is true. And that was the case. That that was the case today. Yeah. One thing that I also think we should mention, at least that's how I saw it, today it was, it looked very convincing that Cavendish, he was also ready to take a, a couple of risks. He was ready to fight for his position in a, in a way that I haven't seen him do in the Giro. And he... Uh, I mean, you need luck, of course, but at the end you also win because you're the best place and, and the fastest guy to the line. That's that's pretty basic. But he, he definitely didn't budge an inch once he got into that last, say, 200, 250 meters. They were just and he was right next to the, uh, you know, on the on the right hand side. He they were close to the barriers. Him and Milan weren't they? But he came out on top. And we talked even yesterday, Brian, a lot about Primoz Roglic and the significance, the symbolism of him winning and the redemption and the pathos of it all. But with Cavendish, there's always raw emotion. And there was, after the finish, he himself, he gave a pretty decent interview in Italian, actually, on Rai television. And he was on the brink of tears. But also, you know, just seeing the reactions of the other riders, there were a lot of riders in the peloton who were delighted for him. Uh, You know, he got... He was warmly congratulated, hugged by Jake Stewart, the young British sprinter from Group Amar FDJ, who I spoke to a few days ago about how much he'd been inspired by Cavendish. But also others, uh, Chris, uh, Christian Sparagli was another one I saw hugging Cavendish. And um, well, it was it made it a huge, huge moment, didn't it? Yeah, um, I think for and, anyone but and his, again, anyone. But, sorry, Daniel, for interrupting. But anyone but his direct competition in the sprint, I think, were very, very happy for him winning his very last Euro stage. It's, I think it's hard to be a bike rider and, and not have that feeling, actually. Yes. And also, huge credit has to go to Cavendish for staying in this race yeah. because I talked about defying odds, defying expectations, defying logic. A lot of us thought the logical thing for him to do, bearing in mind his focus is very much on the Tour de France, would be would have been to skip this last week when you know, he, he got to the end of the second week pretty sick still. He'd really struggled with illness for a few days and facing one of the hardest weeks of Grand Tour well, racing that anyone has ever faced. And, and he, he cr- got through it. Well, he crashed... How many times did he crash in the States in Naples? I think he crashed two times on that day, just. And I was... I think I remember a conversation between you and I in the car where I said, like, I, it, it blows my mind that he still wants to do this, you know, with the hardest week mm. uh, ahead of him at the end. And then imagine just finishing the race and it was not all in vain because it's it, as you said it's a build-up for for things to come with the tour but then he 
in this in the same way he did when he won those uh, incredible stages in the tour he just has an ability to prove every single skeptic wrong in a way that you can like Mark Cavendish you cannot like him but you have to have a ton of respect for how he perseveres in the most uh, crazy hardest stages and then still makes it to the end to do what he did today and with Cavendish as well sometimes you feel that when people talk about motivation what they're talking about is desire there are times with Mark Cavendish when you feel that it goes beyond desire and it's about need and I almost felt that he had made a pact with himself or he decided in his own mind that he needed to win today because he had this perfect record of winning a stage in every Grand Tour that I'm sorry every Giro d'Italia that he's done this was his sixth one he hadn't won a stage so far and you know he of course would have been aware of the, the symbolism of Rome and the you know the, the gladiatorial sort of undertone to it and also just the fact that yeah it's his last day on the Giro d'Italia in the most grandiose possible setting and he he would have needed that yeah uh, more than he just wanted it Brian, another gentleman who will be licking his lips tonight, um, as though he just polished off a plate of carbonara made with guanciale, <laughs> not pancetta, um, while Alberto Grandi tutted in the corner, is Mauro Vegni. Because Mauro Vegni, actually, I'm, I'm recording tonight from the village, the next village down the road from where Mauro Vegni was born in Tuscany. He was born in a place called Cittona, but he's very much a Roman. He grew up in Rome, lived a lot of his life in Rome. And he, well, he's gambled. He and RCS have gambled on this Rome finish, and we think they're going to do it again next year. We're we're not too enamoured with it for various reasons, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. But if you strip away all of the context, exactly, you imagine there isn't any context, and you just watched the spectacle that was offered by Rome itself, the Eternal City, this evening, then you would have said that it was very much a gamble that's paid off. 100%. 100%. Uh, our decision not to be there for reasons you'll hear uh, later in this podcast, it, it doesn't change, but I'm very happy that that spectacle was the ending of a, a, a troubled year and a year that sort of found it hard to find its way out of the, the labyrinth of criticism, whether COVID, lack of excitement, uh, according to some critics, and then, yeah, it, it couldn't really finish in a better way. And to be fair, then I think I think they they did it all fine without us, you know. <laughs> Just so seeing it from a distance, also it brought you back to reality. But then that little glimpse of seeing someone's well, a, a big part of someone's dream up for this duel, namely Mark Cavendish's win, is I, I take an immense amount of joy in that. I have to say. Well, Brian, as we've established, we're not in Rome. We weren't in Rome for the end of the Giro d'Italia. So this is a a strange backward voyage, this podcast. We're going back in time to effectively Sunday morning. Um, We're in reflective mood after yesterday's incredible time trial on the Monte Lussari. And, well, where are we, Brian? Well, Daniel, we're in uh, we're in Padova, so just south of Venice, and we're in the Piazza, what I believe must be the Piazza della Stazione, because we're right next to the the hustling and the bustling train station in this sizable, rather big Italian city. You could easily have had a Giro finish here if you wanted to. 
Well, yes, this was one of the reasons that we stopped here effectively this afternoon. I suggested that, I mean, Padova is a beautiful city. I lived here for a few months many years ago. Some fantastic piazzas here, particularly Prato della Valle. It's, I think it's the biggest piazza in Italy, if not one of the biggest piazzas in Europe. It would have been a fantastic endpoint for the Giro d'Italia, a much more sensible endpoint, as would Trieste, as would various other cities in the northeast of Italy. And, well, we took the decision not to go to Rome. It was inconvenient. It was pretty inconceivable um, from an environmental point of view, um, we thought. Obviously, we want to be on the on the ground at the Giro d'Italia. I think yesterday's time trial epitomised why we want to be on the ground at the Giro d'Italia. The first few minutes of yesterday's episode, I think, well, hopefully, they took the listener with us onto the summit in those decisive moments when Primoz Roglic was approaching, crossing the line, and likewise Geraint Thomas. And they are simply moments, it's drama, that we cannot capture remotely. However, to go to Rome for what will essentially be a procession with the result we think decided seemed unnecessary, completely unnecessary. Well, if you, if you make up, if you do the, the maths of the hundreds of cars the two chartered airplanes, the buses, the motorcycles, they're all traveling um, 800 kilometers to do, that, to do that procession. And as much as I love Rome and I think it's, it's, it's a beautiful place to have a stage finish, I, I think it's environmentally completely bonkers to, to do that after finishing this, I mean, on the border to Slovenia. And I'm not saying it to be, you know, to finger paint a halo above my head. But keep in mind that this this Giro, we've definitely been reminded of how difficult it's going to be in the future. And it already is to live with global warming and to live next to a, a slow-moving, potentially faster than we'd like to uh, admit, a, a environmental catastrophe. And I'm not saying that this our decision is, is you know, it's not, it's the ti- no, it's a tiny drop in the water, but I've, I, I think it's... Uh, it's a visible or listenable way of showing our, uh, I, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very, very stupid and yeah, unnecessary decisions in a lot of other places in Italy where the Giro could finish. That would have been a lot closer to where we were yesterday. Well, Brian, we are not in Rome, so we won't get to see the Colosseum. But what we did see yesterday was a momentous day for the Giro d'Italia, a momentous moment for the Giro d'Italia, as we expected. I mean, yesterday we didn't get too much into the technicalities of where time was lost and how it was lost and why it was lost. And as expected, there have been all sorts of... Well, there's been some empirical data about what happened yesterday, who lost time where, who gained it where. And there's been a lot of, of theorising about the causes the the bike change we didn't really zoom in on that yesterday the helmet change um, which was probably more pertinent for Geraint Thomas the time he lost changing helmet and and putting it back on again Re- estimates I've seen on the amount he conceded there range from five seconds to 15 seconds I think 10 is a reasonable estimate and then we've had we've also had this wonderful um, maybe apocryphal human interest angle of Primoz Roglic's good Samaritan that he found when his chain drops who may or may not be someone he competed with in Tarvizio in the World Ski Jumping Championships in 2007 a teammate we talked about the fact that 
um, he'd won gold there and it was a gentleman called well uh, we've seen reports that it was a gentleman called Mitya Mez- Mejnar unconfirmed as I say yeah it was a it was it was at a part of the the climb where there weren't anyone there weren't any spectators that were more so concentrated on the lower slopes of the Lusanian and obviously at the finish line which was like little Slovenia yesterday and then all of a sudden at the exact spot where Roglic dropped his chain this guy was standing there and uh, yeah as, as we spoke about yesterday it was also remarkable how much he kept his cool Roglic maybe even had to, like could, had a bit of a chat with his former his former competitor and uh, as, as also was mentioned by his sports director yesterday he was completely calm and yeah just added that rush of adrenaline that you know threw him up the Monte Lusadi and then the last kilometers very epic scenes really and it looked Brian to us as though Garrett Thomas and Ineos had taken a very conscious decision to try to remain as calm and cool as possible during the bike change but they remained well, unflustered almost to a fault that there was a there looked to be a lack of urgency now whether it was five seconds, whether it was eight seconds, you can debate whether that made the difference between uh, Roglic winning and not winning. But I think you also have to take into account momentum. We don't know exactly what information Thomas was getting at what part of the course. He talked about the bicarbonate of soda as well. That, that played its role. We can also see in the times we've uh, sort of analysed the various splits and, and people have been back and watched the footage and done their own timings. And we can see that where he lost it in terms of Roglic gaining a lot of seconds was in the last two kilometres, which in some ways is surprising because it wasn't... 300 metres after. It, it, it wasn't the hardest part of the climb, but Thomas being a slightly heavier rider, you, you would think that the, the disadvantage would have compounded as he went further up that very steep climb, and that's what appears to have happened. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you take away whatever time he lost but because it was it was definitely more than a handful of seconds by the bike helmet change if you take away Roglic uh, misfortune with the drop chain if you take all those things into account it's still a fact that Garen Thomas lost steam at the last part of the time trial I mean that's what that's where he basically lost the the Giro and he also said and I think in a very early reflection which I have a lot of respect for because who's able to do that after losing the Giro that he he was happy that he lost it by that much because if not it would have been the shame and maybe he was indirectly referring to if not he will be when he looks at the footage for how they managed all those you know the bike change and, and everything and, and and like we said yesterday also the the, the coverage was horrible and they, they get in the sports director's car or car and the, the, behind the motorcycle they get information but I'm, I'm pretty sure that had been scarce as well because where would they really be getting it from anyway so yeah it's uh, he lost it fair and square but it would have probably been, been a little bit easier to to manage the losses if he'd known where he was you know next to Roglic and Brian just on the drama the suspense it was the fourth closest year Italia general classification ever uh, Fiorenzo Magni was involved in two of the Giri that have been closer and he was the winner of two of the Giri that have been closer in 1948 he beat Ezio Cecchi by 11 seconds and in 1955 he beat Fausto Coppi by 13 seconds the other closer Giro d'Italia was in 1974 sorry when Eddie Merckx beat Giambattista Baroncelli by 12 
seconds. As far as Grand Tours in general are concerned, of course, the Tour de France in 1989 was closer. Greg LeMond beating Laurent Fignon by eight seconds. And the closest of all was the Vuelta a España in 1984, which Eric uh, Caritou won by six seconds over Alberto Fernandez. Uh, Alberto Fernandez Blanco. Brian just, well, ha- had time to read various things and, and scan the headlines and some of the opinion pieces about yesterday. Um, some fantastic bits of writing and obviously everyone trying to make sense of what they saw in those heady, febrile hours yesterday afternoon on Montelusari. Um Alex Roos in... L'Equipe wrote this morning, so many things were turned on their head yesterday. The general classification of the Giro d'Italia, of course, but above all, the personal journeys of Primoz Roglic and Garant Thomas. In another illustration of cycling acting as a giant director of fate or administrator of destiny, a higher power pulling strings, giving with one hand and taking away with the other between cruelty and kindness. Yeah, I mentioned before, he's, he's our, gener- our generation's best writer, definitely, in my opinion. One thing that I also, you know, thinking back about yesterday that comes to mind, you know, it, it took you know, more than 3,000 kilometers of racing. You know, there was a, two time trials as well. But I, there's also a certain sense of justice, even if things were so close, that yesterday it was within, 100% within Garen Thomas's control to defend his jersey and win the duel. No, I mean, no contingencies. There was a time trial. It's you against you against the clock then against the reference of, of your closest competitors and sometimes in other tours when the longer time trials finish the the, uh, the second last stage I remember it used to be in the Tour de France and it's always also been here in the Giro this was the right stage I think for the Giro to, to just come above that feeling of unfulfilled and that feeling of lacking of racing and lacking of drama because I think yesterday had everything uh, really, the the only possible race that could save the the the, the face of, of this Giro, in my opinion, the third wine glass, I think, um, to to be confirmed, to to be possibly updated between now and this evening. Brian, um, there's also been there've been some quibbles with this attempt to link what happened yesterday, or I think this sort of common feeling on the part of a lot of people that yesterday was somehow the completion of an arc which began with La, La Planche de Belfi. I, I really feel that La, La Planche de Belfi has been the prism through which not only have we viewed Primoz Roglic's career, but he, that, that was what transformed Roglic from a sort of inscrutable Slavic identikit into someone who inspired empathy, not just admiration. Um, that empathy has been the lens through which we've watched everything he's done since. It's been the sort of lasso that's dragged us along with every up, down, triumph and misfortune he's experienced. I mean, no doubt his story looks and feels very different, a lot more textured from behind his eyes, within his entourage. But for us, I mean, our guts trade in simple emotions. And I think the greatest tribute to Roglic in his career is that he and his story have provoked, since La Planche de Belfi, have provoked those basic but intense emotions in us, as well as that fantastic palmarès. Yeah, and I think if you if you insist on taking that narrative away, you strip a context of seeing the the joy and the relief in the eyes of his teammates, you know, because it was ident- it was the exact same situation with them sitting there and watching it all crumble, and they had a glimpse of that again, a déjà vu of that, you know, 
ground-shattering defeat it would have been if it, the, the drop chain had caused him the the Giro win or the possibility at least to take the Giro win. So seeing their joy, which was the exact opposite of the reaction they had on Plans de Bayfil, I think it underlines that that context. I mean, if you can't have that, then yesterday was just the result, right? Yesterday was not just the result. There's so much more than that. So much more goes into describing what that was all about. It was just the rider with the best palmares on the Giro start line confirming the predictions and and what the what the form book told us was going to happen. Another friend of ours, uh, Leonardo Piccione of the Bidon podcast, Geronimo, which um, we've mentioned on many, many occasions in this Giro d'Italia, he noted that the three sim- most symbolic days of the Grand Tours in this decade have been Planche de Belfi in 2020, uh, Galibier in 2022 at the Tour de France and Lusari in 2023, so yesterday. In all three cases, one of the protagonists was Roglic, defeated uh, a helper, lieutenant to uh, Jonas Vingegaard and finally triumphing yesterday. A panoply of roles, or a range of roles, which explains his enormous mark both in a narrative and sporting sense, on this era. Yeah, and if you think the mentioning of the Planche de Béfi somehow dwarfs Roglic's persona or the identity of his, the value of his career and him as a person, I, I, I don't think you really understood what was at stake and how you know, a lot of Roglic's career has been Grand Tours. He's won a lot of heaps of other stuff, albeit... But he's, he's been chasing Grand Tours and he came relatively late to the sport and that's been his big goal. So the ones that the near misses are also part of his his history with the sport and, and the Grand Tours. And um, yeah, that, that's, there's, always, there's always a context, right? there's always a personal history behind any defeat and any triumph. And, and that's really deep down the, the engine that, that really makes cycling interesting, why it has a narrative and why we, why we love it. I think also just turning our attention to Geraint Thomas for a minute, if this is any kind of punctuation mark or any uh, defining sort of a defining coat of paint on the career of Geraint Thomas, I think what stands out from yesterday is his reaction, uh, how magnanimous he was, how gracious he was, and everyone has pretty much unanimously pointed this out. And that's that has been another facet of his career that maybe wouldn't, receive the attention that it has deserved without yesterday this is it's been a through line in his career that uh, you know this this nobility really with which he's carried out his work as a professional cyclist and he's gone about things and but yesterday was really I mean I know he would much prefer to have won and had another grand tour on his palmares but in a way that is a it's a kind of trophy in itself it's a kind of monument to Geraint Thomas in itself yeah, and uh, you know, being gracious in a moment of defeat is not a, a quality that's bestowed on on everyone. But it, I think it also takes one to have tried to win, or have won massive things like he has throughout his career, but also has lost a lot. It, it his persona encompasses those two extremes of of cycling throughout his career, and it takes someone like him. And it actually it it could only be him, who who basically explain those feelings and, and show that deep respect that, that you have amongst two great competitors. Uh, Ciro Scognamiglio, Italian journalist from La Gazzetta dello Stopport. 
think we know who you are. Yeah. Uh, best, but maybe you don't imagine my choices for the best thing and for the worst thing of this Giro. So, the best thing, I go with the attitude showed with Garen Thomas during all this Giro. And especially with one quote that I really liked a lot when he said... Uh, more or less at the middle of the third week I don't know, maybe after Cowley or something like that uh, I'm 37 years old, I should be here uh, I should be on a beach but at the contrary I'm still fighting for the jersey oh, in all these three weeks uh, very calm, very relaxed everything for him is a bonus so I like this attitude very much The worst thing, mm, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday night, maybe something um, uh, always about, about attitude. I didn't like really much the um, big names uh, for the overall. They haven't fight a lot for stage victories. And this is a pity, I think. Uh, also for public, it's certainly good when breakways uh, uh, arrives at the finish and with the guy from the, break, uh, from the breakway wins. But at the same time, it's also good to, to see a battle for the stage win from the guys from the GC. Maybe in the future, I was thinking, maybe could be new rule maybe giving more bonus seconds and maybe as was in the past for example 20 or 30 seconds for stage win maybe this could help also the big names not to have a strategy conservative strategy but also fighting for most stage wins one thing i like in this giro was the accessibility of riders. I am Leonardo Piccione from the podcast Geronimo by Bidon and Alvento. After the, the COVID season, this was the first Giro where we could uh, spend time with them, like even five or six minutes interviews in the morning uh, at the bus, which was not possible until last year. And so for us, which are kind of young in this job in some sense, it was the first time that we could uh, have so much time to, to, to talk to, to riders and it was very nice and, and a new thing for us I didn't like if I can say the storyline of this Giro because I have the feeling that the, the peak of the pathos was after the time trial in Cesena where uh, Remco won by one second and everyone was still there, the big names. And then the Covid and Teo's crash and bad weather, everything came together and I have the feeling that um, the interest around the Giro went down. And of course there is something specific about this Giro, the bad weather, the crashes and the big names going home. But there is also something about the idea of the Giro, having like these fireworks just at the end, the last two days or the last day, that uh, is something that organizers and, you know, uh, director of the Giro has to think about in the long term because something is not working properly.
Well, my name is uh, Pim Bruinsels. I'm working for In It Wheel, the Dutch podcast of uh, Thijs Sonneveld and uh, Hidde van Warmerdam. The thing I didn't like was that we didn't get any racing about GC, I think. We've got uh, seven kilometers about racing for GC. It's understandable because of the weather, but uh, I like a bit more racing and all of that. The thing I like the most about this Giro is all the views we've got. Look at where we are. We are at Montelusari now and we're at 1700 meters. Yesterday we were at 2100. That's the thing I like the most. Renat Schotten, Sportza, all platforms. Um, what I most disliked about this Giro won't be a surprise to you. It was uh, the abandon of Remco Evenepoel. We were on a, a roller coaster up the mountain and we, we came down from it. So uh, the roller coaster down the mountain wasn't that nice because there was a lot of expectation in Belgium. And if you look at the way the Giro unfolded, we never know, of course, but it, I just have a strong feeling that he would have won it quite easily. So that's a bit of a bummer being a Belgian cycling journalist that has always dreamt about witnessing on-site Belgian final victory so we'll have to wait somewhere in the future. Another 40 years and what about something you really liked? Well I must say the place we are standing just right now Daniel is really astonishing. There's been so much polemics about this uh, uphill mountaintop finish and, and this is really this is simply stunning and I think once again the Giro has pulled it off they found a location that really is nowhere to be found in the world of Grand Tour cycling. I mean, this to have as a grand finale, the whole surroundings with the mountains, of course, they're lucky with the weather today. Uh, okay, I know steep percentages, but even then, I mean, the riders must understand that this is a way to, um, to give uh, the cycling audience an extra, because really, this adds a lot of excitement in one location, and I love it. Well, Brian... We heard there from a few of our colleagues on this Giro d'Italia, a few of our journalist friends, what they've enjoyed and not enjoyed at this Giro d'Italia. We will get to our hits and misses shortly, but before we do, I think it's time for today's Pausa Cappuccino. It's around about that time. It's just after midday. And, well, this is our opportunity to ask Lionel Bernie what he's enjoyed and not enjoyed about this Giro d'Italia. It's past 11. Time for my cappuccino break. La Pausa Cappuccino con Lionel Bernie. Dopo le 11. Pronto, Lionel, for the last time on this Giro d'Italia. Oh, I'm glad you added that that last line there. Yeah, the last time this Giro d'Italia. <laughs> yeah. The cycling podcast goes on, you know. The Giro is not the end of the season, but uh, yeah, it's a, the end of the first phase of the season, isn't it? The Grand Tours are underway and well, you must be in Rome now. <laughs> no, no. In this very odd time warp in which we're recording this podcast, I've just dropped uh, in Barone off in Padova Station to get his train to Pietra Santa. I'm heading south uh, somewhere else, somewhere that's not Rome. This brings back um, slightly strange memories for me being in Padova Station because I think the last time I was here was in what 1999. And I just run away 
Lionel, from a, a very unpleasant and vindictive landlady. I left my flat in Padova. It was the first time I lived in Italy, and I left my flat in the middle of the night. Um, I left a, a snotty note about how awful she'd been to me, and um, yeah, sn- snuck out at two in the morning, and I slept on a bench in Padova Station for about three or four hours before my train somewhere else. So um, yeah, wow. I, think, I don't think I've been back since. What an extraordinary tale, and one that we should probably <laughs> yeah. we should probably explore for an episode for Friends of the Podcast. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, Il Baroni anyway. is on the Orient Express. Is he back to Tuscany? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, in the absence of any option to go by gondola, I think <laughs> he's on the Orient Express. But Brian, um, but Lionel, we were in the course of a conversation there. We just, well, we just started to hear from some of our colleagues about likes and dislikes, or a big like and a big dislike of this Giro d'Italia and it would be remiss of me not to ask you Uh, very briefly then there were lots of things to like in the end weren't there but I think the outstanding memory just because it just sang Italy to me was seeing Filippo Zanna in the national champions jersey win a mountain stage I thought that kind of you know vindicated the entire race from an Italian point of view lots of criticism of the the weather which is not really in Maraveni or indeed Italy's hands is it but it led to kind of a lot of grumbling in the first half of the race well well into the second half of the race really wasn't it but seeing Zana win in the Tricolore I thought was a just a, an, an image worthy of the Giro d'Italia itself and the thing I didn't enjoy really was that grumbling about the conditions the Covid positives the I mean the extreme suggestion that the race was kind of on its knees or you know perhaps even should be cancelled I mean yes the attrition rate was really high for a number of days there quite early in the race but actually 125 riders have made it to Rome and that's kind of a roundabout par for uh, a year when you know perhaps a few more withdrawals than we might get but it's certainly nowhere near the, you know a sort of tiny peloton rolling into the finish so I think the, the Giro has kind of redeemed itself in the last three or four days some great racing at the end there Zana I mentioned for Santiago Buitrago as well because that was a great stage victory and then of course yesterday incredible race just jaw-dropping really and the parallel with La Planche de Belfi is unavoidable yes I would say so and well that that sort of wedding cake decor uh, backdrop as well extraordinary it looked beautiful I was very very envious a few times during the Giro uh, but yesterday was a day when I would love to have been in the in the gondola uh, sailing up the mountain splashing up the mountain <laughs> <laughs> well Lionel talking of uh, accompanying us on this journey um, I think well you would like to acknowledge the absolutely fundamental role that a few people besides you me and Brian have played absolutely yeah well first of all you and Brian for providing such a fantastic listen for three weeks it's been excellent a very very good uh, grand tour for the cycling podcast really enjoyed all of the kilometer zeros as well and all of those episodes put together expertly by our brilliant team of producers who are adam bowie will jones john mooney hugh owen and tom wally they do such fantastic work not just on the kilometer zero episodes which are a little more intricate but in getting our regular stage episodes out in good time 
after the stage. I think it's taken for granted a little, little bit. Certainly not by us, but the fact that we're always out within good time of the finish is down to the skill of the production team. So a big thank you to them. Of course, a huge thanks to Science in Sport and to MAP for supporting us all the way around Italy and their support will continue through to the end of the season. A big thank you to David Luxton and everyone at DLA for smoothing the way for us on a consistent basis. To Audio Boom, our audio hosts, and to Amada Terra. We couldn't mention uh, the Giro d'Italia without having Amada Terra's music in our heads, could we? It's the theme tune of May for us. And finally, to all of our listeners, especially friends of the podcast who have chosen to support us financially, but to everyone who's listened and sent an email or a comment, uh, thank you very much for joining us, well, more specifically, Daniel and Brian, on the journey from Abruzzo to almost Rome. Another couple of little bits of housekeeping to mention before I sign off, Daniel, because right at the start of the Giro, Stacey Snyder's batch of cups and gelato bowls sold out very, very quickly, and we asked for some causes for that money to support. Now, lots of people suggested some very worthy causes in Emilia Romagna, the region affected so badly by the flooding around the midway point in the Giro d'Italia. People suggested some cycling causes, but we have decided because of the, well, the devastating nature of the flooding and especially in light of the loss of life, that it would be more appropriate to support the region as a whole. And so we are going to donate the money for this Giro's batch of Stacey Snyder Cups to Amelia Romagna. They have a, a flood fund to help people, businesses, uh, who have been affected by the flooding and that idea came from friend of the podcast Paul Hareman who rides for London Dynamo the very big club in London they had been planning to go to the Nove Colli Sportive in Cesenatico which was cancelled because of the floods but when they contacted their hotel the people at the hotel said look still come over because the revenue will be helpful to us if you come over and spend some time and spend some money in the area so they went and they had a fantastic time cycling and some very warm hospitality from their hosts so we will donate the money to the Amelia Romagna fund and also on the subject of Stacey Snyder's Cups you may remember everybody out there that last year all three batches of Stacey's Cups from the Giro, the Tour and the Vuelta the idea was to gather all of that money together and donate it to a cause um, in memory of Richard Moore and we have asked Richard's widow Virginie to nominate a charity and she has nominated Bereaved Children Support which is a charity which helps children who lose a parent or a sibling in sudden circumstances and the grand total is £8,900 so that's a really significant donation to a very worthy cause and we thank Stacey and we thank everyone who has bought a cup because that money will do a lot of good for some children who are confronted with some really difficult circumstances. So thank you very much to everybody. Indeed, Lionel, I'd like to echo all of that. And well, thank you as well. I've enjoyed, very much enjoyed our transgressive cappuccino breaks every day. Um, don't be surprised if I just mm. idly call you up tomorrow at about <laughs> two minutes past 11 just feeling slightly forlorn bereft without our pals of cappuccino well it's a bank holiday here in the uk tomorrow so i won't be answering my phone i should probably be out on my bike but uh, no, it wouldn't be the first time you've you've course screened me 
Oh, very rare, very rare. That's uh, yeah. I, no, I don't make a habit of that. As soon as I see Daniel Freiber pop up on my phone, um, I can't wait to press the green. The heart starts to race ten, ten beats, <laughs> ten beats faster. <laughs> well, we will be back though, Daniel, won't we? As we begin our build-up to the Tour de France, it's not long away now, is it? I'll be off to Bilbao. We'll uh, talk a lot more about the Tour de France over the coming weeks. In the meantime, there are episodes of the cycling podcast Femina, Service Course and Explore in the pipeline. They'll be out in uh, the coming days. And the cycling podcast, the regular show, will be back shortly. Daniel, you'll be off to the Dauphiné, won't you? And that really is when the Tour de France preparation really starts to ramp up. So we will be across all of that. But before I go, Daniel, I would like to read a poem which has been sent in by a listener, Ralph Wilson. He has written to us to say how much he's, he, he, uh, he has written to us to say how much he's enjoyed every minute of the Giro Vagando this year. And he says that his friend, Jez Cox, not the same Jez Cox who is sometimes in the commentary box for Eurosport GCN, a different Jez Cox. He's written a poem. He's far too modest to share it, but Ralph has decided to share it on his behalf. And it is an ode to Derek G. So it's a long while since I've read any um, poetry. I'm not really a performance poet myself, but I'll give it my best shot. So here we go. And people will ask, was it Thomas Roglic Almeida of that peerless trio who rode with such verve, boldness, brio? Well, indeed, the victor from those demigods rose, but another stole our hearts, one of the heroes. It was the lowly velodrome from whence he hailed, but the high mountains where he near prevailed. Though stung more than once by the eternal second, he wore that curse as if beweaponed. For who really conquered the Giro in 2023? It was the wondrous, mighty Derek G. Sublime. Simply sublime. Just like to echo Lionel's words there, um, his thanks to all of our producers in particular who have done an extraordinary job supporting me on this Giro d'Italia and Brian and uh, also Amara Terra for as Lionel mentioned there providing the wonderful soundtrack the soundtrack of our early summer as it has been for several years now Greg Andrews Divine Sellers and everyone else that Lionel mentioned particularly the listeners as well um, your messages of support your enthusiasm your patience with us as well are always hugely hugely appreciated and you're as much a part of this journey as as we are aren't they brian yeah absolutely and it's all you know when you do a grand tour you have a lot of friends in italy and in the sala stampa and and so do i and it's you just get every every giro you do in that type of company you just get a little bit closer to to the people you you work next to and i I really, it was great to see Tom Smith and his wife down in Aquilea. It was also, I've gotten to know the, the Bidon guys, the Geronimo guys a lot better this year. And what, what delightful traveling company and, and friends they are and have become. And there's also, if, can we, are we getting into talking about our, our favorite parts? So, I, you know, looking down on the list of, of stages and stage winners. And I think we basically, I think for myself, I got distracted by the lack of GC action. And I think that somehow distorted the joy I could find in the, the individual stage wins, which when you look back on those lists, there's some, some rather spectacular ones. And I'm not going to list all of them, but I, I, you know, I thought there was great racing today. Michael Matthews won in a really hard stage. Um, to Melfi, I think it was 
seeing Lechnison take the jersey, I think, was great. Magnus Court and Mess Peterson's wins were, I think, were not just because I'm Danish, but they were they were certainly remarkable. Ben Healy's uh, continuous breakthrough has gone, you know, throughout this Giro, Dense's double victories, all of those, in, you know, individual ones. And I think, you know, Bergamo was a wonderful stage. It was a massive win for McNulty. So. Because we kept talking about when's, when is the GC going to unfold, when, when is all of this going to happen, I, I think I, uh, I, I didn't appreciate enough the individual stage racing that, that we saw throughout. And, yeah, and luckily I got to enjoy the, the ambience and the various places we've been in and our trip to Naples will, will stay with me for a very long time. Well, Brian, that's some of your winners. I'm going to give or some of your hits. So I'm going to give mine in just a minute. But I'm going to start. I'm going to start with a negative or, or something which seemed like a negative at the time. The stage to Cormontana was decapitated, truncated because of the weather, and this led to a lot of debate and discussion, particularly on social media, about the whole process by which stages are changed, altered, uh, adapted in bad weather conditions and it really shined a spotlight on the role of the professional cyclists association and their new president adam hansen yesterday he was at monte lusario on monte lusari canvassing the opinions of the riders continuing the process that he began when he was elected a few weeks ago and i thought it would be a good opportunity just to catch up with him and ask him what he learned from that day and what he's learned indeed in his term or in his mandate of just a few months thus far. So Adam Hansen is the subject of the last chiacchierata del giro. La chiacchierata del giorno. The teen wag of the day. Adam, I mean, you've, I suppose you've been in the news to a greater extent than you would have liked over the last two or three weeks. But this has been, well, your first two or three months on the job. I mean, what have you learned particularly in the last three weeks about communicating with the riders, communicating on their behalf? What are the big sort of um, learnings you take from this? Um, yeah, mostly the, the riders' voices aren't being heard. And what's interesting is, like especially like today, I'm, I'm asking about uh, road safety and that. Yeah. And some of the input they've been giving me is um, interesting because, actually, it's kind of funny because I was um, asking the riders, and they they see basically what I'm the questions I'm asking, and Lupla from the Giro organisation was looking over my shoulder and was like he's, and I know he's um, very very angry with me at the moment and that, and he was looking and I you know, and it was funny we had a meeting this morning and um, I wouldn't say it, it was. Uh, it was not a planned meeting, but it did, we didn't really resolve uh, too much there. And then he came up to the cable car and he saw me at the cable car interviewing the riders one by one as they come up. And he was a bit curious. And afterwards, I, I came to him and I said, I, I want to show you what I'm doing. And I, I showed him the questions that I'm asking the riders. And, and one of them is like, where should a policeman stand in front of a, uh, a wide road that goes narrow or a car on the side of the road? And then um, he had a colleague with him, uh, looking on that, and and he was like, I said, this is to help you guys also, you know, because a lot of riders saying in the first hundred kilometres we can just have signs, signs a problem, no problem. And when you have a police go through the bunch on a motorbike, stop, identify, and the jury does a very good job, of it, and then the peloton passes, that motorbike will go through the bunch again. And what I found out is just this 
when when their when their voices are heard and I and I express it to you, you can say personnel. It'll be cheap for you this way. You have less motorbikes going through the peloton, which is better also. So I'm not. I'm, I'll say I'm not against you. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to work with you. And yeah, sometimes we cross hairs and things like that. But a lot of things I'm doing is um, you know just getting the voice. And I really think that riders know the most about what is safe and what is unsafe. There is a database of of crashes and things like this, but my only concern with that, one, which is great, but my only concern is that there are a lot of near misses that's not documented. And riders see that firsthand and they know what they can and can't do on the bike. And just by having a, a police stand 40 meters in front is an extra two seconds reaction time, which is huge for a rider. And if you're going to put a policeman there, it's going to cost nothing extra. So this communication is very important and that's what I'm trying to stress at the moment. And well, that's an example of something that's very granular because people want panaceas, don't they? They want a silver bullet to the problem of safety, but the devil is really in the detail, isn't it? Exactly, and and a lot of it, the riders aren't getting hurt, and and this is this is really for everyone, also for the organisers, save them money, make it safer, make it more exciting racing, having the stars there, um, yeah, and I, I think um, just to like what I'm trying to do is get as much enough information as possible from the riders, and then write a uh, script of the regulations that I think they want, go back to them, is this what you want? Okay, then go to the organizers and say, what can you do? You know, and they come to me and they, they basically say, okay, this we can, then maybe we can do this. I go back to the riders and we negotiate and then we make it a rule. I think it's um, pretty simple. And, then, and, and the information going across to the organizers is so valuable and no one's, been done, no one's done this before. And I mean, the one quibble is that it's only ever gonna be an imperfect democracy what you've tried to effectuate with the, the stage you know a week or so ago but would your contention be that some degree of democracy and even if it's imperfect communication as well with the whatsapp groups and whatever that's still better than nothing still better than what they've had oh for sure before it was a bit of a mess um with the voting on the 13th we actually had a proper structure put in place a proper threshold that had to be over um so this was a, a huge thing it's never going to be perfect and there's always riders know it's, there's always going to be dangerous situations and bad weather and and they know that it's just there's got to be a, a point that's all and just finally just from the uci would you like to see a greater degree of well, control and you know, people have talked about this idea of a course in, of a rudimentary, mandatory brute inspector every world tour race, every 2.1 race, every 1.1 race. Is that the would that be the easiest thing the UCI could implement to make a big, big change quite quickly? Yeah, so we had a meeting last Thursday about this with the UCI organizers' teams. Um, and we, we do think this has to be put in place and we need some system where they can document all the things. We were actually talking about the Milan San Ramo with a bike rack on the, on the road and the organisers fully apologised for it and they just missed it, they think because there was cars parked there and it was a bit hidden. Um, so we're, we're trying to you know, put a system in place and, and all the riders are saying that the, the organiser must be more consistent in their actions, they have to be. So Brian, st staying with the, the negatives, at the time, at that point in the race, on the second weekend when the Grand Montana stage was affected by the umpteenth day of awful weather on this Giro d'Italia. The race seems to be on a very negative trajectory and it led us to, well we already mentioned climate change once in this episode, but it led us to talk about date changes and, and more besides what RCS Sports should be doing to maybe give this race a new face. We even, well we did a kilometre zero entitled La Corsa Rota, suggesting that the, maybe the Giro d'Italia was fundamentally broken. 
I haven't completely changed my mind um, about the fact this race does need some tweaks. Um, it needs a, a conceptual rethink. Um, on Friday, the stage two, the Trecima di Lavarido, we had, well, we started this Giro d'Italia talking about how brakes were not succeeding anymore in World Tour races. And indeed, there was a statistic um, that 50 something, there have been 50 something days of World Tour racing this year and no brakes had yet succeeded. That changed definitively on this Giro d'Italia. Why did it change? Changed largely because the stages were very long and very hard and the the, the action, the difficulty was so backloaded in this Giro d'Italia that the big GC teams did not want to burn too many matches and they did not want to commit to controlling transitional stages even if there was the nugget, the potential nugget of bonus seconds at the end. And indeed, that's what happened even at the Trecima di Lavaredo. And I thought that that really detracted from the spectacle. And it, was, it, it's not, it wasn't a, a dimension of this problem that we discussed in this year up until then. But thinking about bonus seconds and how they've been essential to Roglic and other Grand Tours, but also how they've been essential to the drama and excitement of Grand Tours over the last few years I think that's another reason for RCS to look at the length of stages and the difficulty of stages I think there's a there's an argument that supports that the, the need for a change in how if if they are when the RCS do their own evaluation of how, what, how was the quality of racing in this Giro well their intention was to make it as hard as possible at the end to create great drama if if that was their idea then they don't know I think then they don't understand the mechanisms of modern racing. Like I said earlier on the podcast, is the riders don't get stronger because the parkour gets harder. <clears throat> they know exactly what they're capable of and they know when they need to do something and they most certainly also know when they don't need to do something. So let's just say that the, sh- the stages were shorter. Let's just say that the Giro was a little bit easier uh, coming into the last week. Uh, I think more riders would have been in contention. I think the bigger teams, Jumbo... Ineos and UA weren't necessarily able to keep things so much under check that we potentially only had, to be fair, 400 meters of racing on, on the greatest, potentially greatest stage of this year. So they'll need to figure out how to make racing, GC racing, more exciting. And I don't think that, like the long stages and sucking out the energy of the riders in the first two weeks actually helps them with achieving the goal of creating the drama that everyone wants and they most they're selling this drama this is their business so in that, in that sense I don't think they, they have, they've been true to their business model to put it in a really you know banal bad way I guess I think they need a rethink and they need a rethink about those stages the bonus seconds and that's mil- we talked about that a lot in the card then millions of places in Italy where you can do a finishing circuit with a small climb that's, and will be spectacular especially also for the people who they, I think, still also deserve to, you know, be taken into consideration while watching the races. Yeah, yesterday on Monte Lusari, it probably it might have obscured some people's judgment of the race because it was uh, it was one of the greatest, um, certainly scenically, it was one of the greatest finishes I've, I've ever seen at a Grand Tour, and uh, rightly so, Maraveni and his colleagues have received laurels for that confetti for that this morning a lot of praise for that this morning but there were a couple of other things that struck us and we talked about in the car i really feel that in terms of redefining itself or or giving its identity a bit of a facelift the Giro d'Italia needs to wrap its arms all the way around the Dolomites um, we talked about how visually the, the stage to Trecimi Lavarello also the day before to Val di Zolo it was it was a landscape that the Tour de France 
can't compete with like for like. It's got different mountains, but they, they're visually, um, they are starkly different for the Dolomites. And that's a point of difference that I think the Giro d'Italia really needs to lean into. In the past few years, we've seen races with one day in the Dolomites, two days. Let's have, from, from now on, let's have at least three days in the Dolomites. And also yesterday, the Julian Alps, the far northeast of the corner. Let's move the emphasis slightly away from the mountain range that Italy shares with France. You know, the Colle delle Finestre, the Colle dell'Agnello in the Western Alps. And, and if I was Mario Veni and I, I was RCS, I'd take a big swing to the east as far as the mountain stages are concerned. You mentioned it, Brian finishes on the top of small climbs in in the same way that Tirreno Adriatico finishes a lot of stages um, on on those hilltop towns again iconic in Italy that's a defining characteristic of the Italian topography and and shorter stages without a doubt um, that would be the way that I would go Brian and um, well I, I don't know whether they are minded to do that however I, I fear that yesterday's success and yesterday's drama might entrench the decision makers at RCS in believing that their, their identity, their current identity, long stages, the hardest of the three Grand Tours, is the right way to go. Yeah, I uh, I, I fear that that you're absolutely right in that prediction. I mean, we shall see when the <clears throat> when the race gets. Um, there'll be TV ratings that they're going to have to look at. It's going to they will have meetings with the people who, who sponsor the race and all of that. <clears throat> but I think the the they cannot completely. Put their fingers in, in their ears when when people give feedback. Not just us; um, they might not even care, and that's fine. But also the general public. They they I think this this it's a little bit tone deaf if they don't take some of those things into consideration. In my opinion, Brian, your train will be leaving the station in not very long. So I'm just going to rustle through a few other winners, positives, um, people who will leave this Giro d'Italia with their heads held very high. Uh, Lechnerson, you mentioned DSM. He was part of a fantastic Giro d'Italia for DSM with the Dainese's stage win as well. And, you know, a lot of young riders we hadn't heard a lot about doing a fantastic job for that team. But it was also a great year for older riders. Um, the, the combined ages of the first two on the final podium, Roglic and Garant Thomas, the highest ever I read today in La Gazzetta dello Sport, Another team that did very well, Jaco Lula. They needed a good Giro d'Italia and they got one. Derek G, of course, he won everyone's heart. Um, how can we forget him? We won't forget him because he's going to be a major fixture in Grand Tour racing and not only Grand Tour racing over the next few years. I think we can see that. Um, his teammate, Marco Frigo, a very promising young Italian rider. It was heartening to see a young Italian climber show as much potential as he did. Thibaut Pino's last year in Italia. Well, hopefully it won't be his last year in Italia because I haven't given up hope of persuading, or well, I've tried his mother, um, persuading other family members that it should not be his last year in Italia. Fifth overall for Thibaut Pino. No stage win, but he did take the mountains jersey. Joao Almeida at one stage, Brian, it looked as though well, we were preparing ourselves for a Joao Almeida victory. Uh, he faded slightly in the last couple of days, but still a step up for him. Um, his best finish ever in a Grand Tour. First time he's finished on the podium. Similarly, Eddie Dunbar had a tricky last couple of days to the race, but he's someone who will look back very favourably on this Giro d'Italia, um, as will his team, um, thinking about his future prospects in the Grand Tours. Also mentioned Jumbo Visma, the, the fact that they began this Giro d'Italia in disarray and they had to call on, well, it, the two that they eventually selected were Sam Omen and 
Thomas Glogue, the 21-year-old 20, British rider who was called at the last minute and he acquitted himself extremely well. The two young domestiques for Ineos Grenadiers as well, Timon Aronsman and Laurence de Plus, they finished the race very strongly. Aronsman, sixth place. Um, Brian, I could go on and on. There were a lot of riders who will emerge with um, a lot of credit from this Giro d'Italia. A few losers, a few people who will go home disappointed. Hugh Carthy, I think, um, having bowed out of the race, sick. That was unfortunate. Remco Evenepoel, of course. Theo Gegenhart, who rode superbly um, while he was in the race until that, uh, that very sad exit for him. But he will come back stronger, I'm sure. Um, but Brian, I think the man of the match for me, of the whole Giro d'Italia, was the stuffed fox on the Paso Tre Croci on Friday. And um, that was one of the greatest cycling out of context moments I've ever seen. But Brian, I think that concludes our journey. Um, as I say, you've got to go off and get your train. Um, all that remains for me to do, thanked our broader family, the producers and so on, who have contributed in such vital fashion to this Giro d'Italia. But I'd like to thank you, Brian, for being my companion on this long exhausting in some respects but also very invigorating um journey around italy and um, you've been fantastic company you've been a fantastic teammate wingman lieutenant domestique driver uh, thank you daniel that's i said in the um, preview show of the geo that one of the things i look forward to the most was traveling with you uh <laughs> Yeah, just the corrections going on that one. No, no, and I mean it. It's it's just I mean it's pathetic to say that it's strenuous to to be traveling the Giro and 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 get to experience what we do. But it's also I mean I'm not getting any younger, and it's it's harder and harder to be away from the family. So it if I go, it it, it needs to mean something, and it it certainly has. Uh, so thank you for that, and thank you to Lionel also, and and I think probably above and beyond, thank you to the all the listeners of the cycling podcast who has accepted my presence so frequently as it has been in this Giro I, I don't take that position for granted and I never would uh, so I've gotten some nice feedback as well and the ones who, who didn't like me have, have held their tongue so thank you for that as well and uh, yeah let's let's see what the what the future brings I, uh, I'm doing the tour elsewhere so I'll be looking forward to very much to listening to Lionel and his travels through France so yeah thank you everyone and his band of merry men and women Brian on that note you're not about to head off into the Roman night sadly you're about to head off into the uh, into to the Frecciarossa to the um, Italian intercity train which hopefully is on time and well we'll be back at some point in the next <laughs> couple of weeks not sure when exactly but thank you once again for accompanying us on this wonderful journey around Italy and um, we'll, we'll certainly be back next year for another instalment of Giro Vagando grazie mille e buonasera buonanotte
mozzarella, ci girandella che ne battiella, faceva la con la mozzarella. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.